is powered by the Seneca Network. We are bi-weekly podcasts focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SupChina, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. We are here this week with Heather White, first-time documentary director of Complicit and founder and former executive director of Verite an award-winning nonprofit organization recognized for its groundbreaking leadership in areas of global supply chain and factory social audits. We have a thought-provoking conversation in her living room on a quiet Wednesday evening. The conversation was not so quiet though. As a woman who is responsible, in my view, for taking on big giants like Apple and Foxconn, you can't be quiet. Her perspective is rare. China's manufacturing landscape has rapidly and drastically changed from the days of trade surplus to made in China to the current day trade war, cold war, you name it. Heather's personal experiences provide a glimpse into the devastation as well as the hope in manufacturing hubs in China and the rest of the world. This one is definitely worth a listen. We are so excited to have you on the show today, Heather. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. I think the best place to start is with what you've been working on recently and what's been occupying your time. For the past seven years, I've been working on a documentary film called Complicit, which has been in film festivals around the world for the last two years and will be released in North America later this year, later in 2019. So that was a project that took a lot longer than I'd anticipated, now seven years, but it's been a great project and... Following on that, I'm uh, working on a short film right now about modern slavery. Can you tell us a little bit more about that short film that you're working on right now? One of the funders from Complicit is interested in raising more awareness about the hazards that people are experiencing in the electronics industry, not just in China, which is Complicit's topic, but actually starting in the Congo, in Central Africa, where the minerals are extracted and then sent to all the production zones around the world where the assembly process takes place, where workers are, again, exposed to hazardous conditions, and then ultimately everything ends up in our hands where we're looking at them 24-7. Wow. I actually didn't know about that. I didn't see that in the media. That's a great teaser for what's to come. I do want to backtrack a little bit to what I think was your first exposure to China when you were getting your undergrad at Harvard in Eastern Studies. Was that actually your first touch with China or was there something prior to that? It actually went back significantly earlier in my (laughs) childhood because I lived in a neighborhood in Boston where there were a lot of Chinese families that lived and I was fascinated by the sound of the language. So I was always interested in studying Chinese when I got to college and did that and decided I wanted to major in Chinese East Asian studies at Harvard and just decided I wanted to work there and make it my career because it was so interesting and there were a lot of opportunities at the time because when I graduated we just opened up trade relations with China so they were looking for people who knew about the culture and spoke the language. So... I also want to know more about 
your first job after college? Uh, my first job was with uh, International Harvester, which was an agricultural equipment company that was selling combines and tractors and all sorts of mechanized equipment to the Chinese because they were just opening up and they wanted to import American know-how and farm machinery and that sort of thing. They were still organized into communes then. And so I worked there for a year and then they decided they weren't going to be selling anymore to China. And so I left that job and went to San Francisco and worked at an import-export firm that basically was just importing products from China for uh, design firms and retailers like Pottery Barn and Crate and Barrel. And uh, then I worked in that sector for about 15 years. And what was the trade relationship like at that point? Inu, do you have any impressions about the trade relationship right now? I think based on this very unique perspective that you have. Well, it was interesting because people were talking about the trade deficit between what we were importing from China and what we were selling to China. And the deficit at that point, which was we were buying more from China, was about $7 million. (laughs) (laughs) It's like over $100 billion now. So it was, you know, very early days and people were still kind of excited. I would go to Chinese trade shows and people were very interested to meet an American who spoke Mandarin because then they could ask all sorts of questions about culture and things that they'd been hearing about the United States. I remember one guy really made me laugh because he said, oh, I'm so interested in learning more about the United States and I'd like to learn more about... I heard that people always dress their dogs in clothes. And he said, I saw a picture of a dog wearing a sweater. That's amazing. And what did you say back to him? I said that not everybody put dogs into the clothing. And that, I mean, it's so much bigger now, though, than it was then. I mean, then it was actually pretty rare to see a dog in, you know, any type of, yeah, yeah, you yeah, this was way before that. This was in uh, 1982, so that was still a, a rare phenomenon. So I thought maybe he had seen uh, some kind of publication that was focusing on some of the more interesting but not so common aspects of uh, American culture. And what sort of indicators do you see at the time that growth was on the horizon, you know, Did you see that there was a high potential for growth in China or were you more skeptical about growth? I had no idea of where it was going to go because I'd never experienced it before. The idea that China would be able to catch up and start to look like Hong Kong or catch up and start to look like Taiwan, it just seemed like it was so far away at that point because, you know, there were still mostly public latrines outside of the downtown areas and the um, living conditions were very rudimentary outside of the urban centers. Um, I lived with a Chinese family sometimes when I would come to visit because I had uh, taught her in the U.S. and we had to register at the police station every time that I would go to stay in their home because foreigners were very closely monitored. There were still so few foreigners that were coming to visit Shanghai Mm -hmm. that they actually could keep track and sign them in to the public security uh, office. I mean, even when I was at Tsinghua two years ago, I had to sign in every time I left campus. So that is, you know, something that seems to have stood the test of time. So you've been working with a large manufacturing firm 
It was amid the trade relationship between the U.S. and China. So how do you get to starting Verite, which I think is based in Latin roots of truth? How did you get from there to starting something on your own? Oh, okay. Well, I started something on my own earlier because after I'd worked for the import-export firm for about a year and a half, I decided to start my own and uh, worked out of San Francisco for almost 15 years running my own little agency that uh, connected buyers and sellers. And I used to spend uh, three to four months a year in China traveling to the factories and working at the trade shows. And at that time, a lot of the U.S. companies, they wouldn't go over to China when they wanted to buy products. They would send someone to a trade show and they'd sign orders and they'd never have any idea where the stuff was made or, or under what kind of working conditions. And it wasn't a concern at the time because China was still under uh, state ownership of all the manufacturing in the country. So these were all state-owned factories. At least 50% of them had women as managers and uh, in leadership positions in the factories. They all got fired and have disappeared um, after there was much more acceleration into Western business models of management. Mm -hmm. um, so, And also with those public factories transitioning into quasi-private sector factories with private ownership, everything really changed a lot. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Was... 50% women just because it was a less accelerated space. I mean, going back to women holding up half the sky, is that why women were in 50% of leadership roles? Uh, what, what do you think were the contributing factors? It was a much more egalitarian workplace than you see today. Uh, whenever I would go to meet with the factory and they would always invite me to lunch or dinner, they would bring people from the production line from all different levels, people who repaired machines in the factory whose full-time job was just repairing and, and keeping the machines operating. They rarely even have those people now in factories, which is one of the reasons for the high occupational injury rate in the country is because they don't have people properly maintaining the machinery and properly training the workers on the machinery. But uh, it was a much more egalitarian because of the socialism that was in place. And I'm not saying that women occupied the highest positions in society, but at that time, people were making on average between 30 to $45 a month. An assembly line worker would be making around $30 a month, and the boss at the factory wouldn't be making any more than 60 so it was really a different atmosphere, different time, still uh, believing in the socialist values and trying to give women a lot of equality in the workplace because that had been the commitment uh, by the government since uh, the early 50s. And what else did you learn? I mean, 15 years doing your own thing. Were there any resounding patterns or insights that you got from the time you spent doing this? Oh, definitely. I kept running into the same problems over and over again around shortages and shipments. And as the U.S. government became more concerned about the trade deficit and how much we were importing in apparel and uh, textiles from China, they started creating all these restrictions on how much could come in in every category. And so in order to get permission to bring your shipment into the country, you had to arrange separately something called quota, which have been eliminated uh, within the last 10 or more years. But uh, 
just being able to get the quota documents to go along with the shipment of textiles and uh, apparel became very challenging. And I wanted to understand more about trade theory and economic development from a theoretical perspective. So I, uh, after the crackdown in Tiananmen um, in 89, I decided I'd go back to school and uh, get a master's degree. And I took time off from my work and uh, went to the Sloan School of Management at MIT. And then with your time there, did you really try to connect your learnings with the previous work you had done? Did the further education fulfill this hypothesis that it would give you a more theoretical, better understanding of the work that you were doing? Oh, it was fantastic and really important to my intellectual development and my career. I think that if I hadn't gone back to school and engaged with, you know, some of these great minds. I worked um, with a wonderful economist um, who then transferred over to the new school who studied development economics for 40 years. And so he knew everything about how countries industrialize. And I was his research assistant in the economics department for a year. And I studied uh, trade economics with Paul Krugman, who won a uh, Nobel Prize in econ recently. Yeah. And another professor of mine is now in charge of blockchain at the Federal Reserve Bank. And she was also a a great inspiration and just so brilliant. It was fantastic to have the exposure to all those great minds and the opportunity to explore my own ideas um, in that setting. So I really appreciated it. And I think maybe I appreciate it more because I was a little older when I went back to school. I had already worked for quite a long time. Um, so I was, I think, appreciative of all the assignments in the reading. We had like 300 pages a night that we were responsible for. But um I just devoured it and uh, found it, you know, in- incredibly fascinating. Yeah, I feel the same way. I almost want to wait um, before I go back for further education. You don't really devote yourself to getting into the material. And it's something that's almost, I think, too easy to take for granted. So why did you not decide to become more of a traditional economist? Why didn't you follow in the footsteps of people who seem like they were your mentors at the time in business school? I had three children at that point, and the idea of spending more time in a doctoral program felt like it was going to be a challenge. I mean, women, working mothers, we always are making trade-offs in terms of what we think we can do um, while still being able to make sure our kids get everything that they need. And I was already commuting two hours to get to MIT. And so it felt like um, after I got my master's that it was time to go and uh, start a nonprofit organization. Because while I was still at MIT, I led a class preparing some MBA students to go to Asia for their spring break. It was going to be a three-week-long trip, and they were going to be in uh, some of the main producing countries that were making sneakers and apparel, producing for Nike and Reebok. And there had just been a multi-part award-winning expose in the Boston Globe about the child labor that was being discovered Mm -hmm. in uh, the footwear industry factories. And I had invited the author of that piece to come and uh, present to the class. And it's interesting, now he's making movies. He's made a couple of movies recently. What movies has he also made? Uh, He's made a movie about Benghazi. He's been making movies about uh, conflict in the Middle East. 
Yeah, his name is Mitch Zuckoff. He's at the uh, he's at Boston University now, oh. uh, but he came and he was so criticized and attacked by the MBA students about child labor, about having written an article that implied that U.S. corporations were responsible for the conditions in the factories. That blows my mind. Tell me more about that. <laughs> this was in 1995. And it was the first time that people were coming to grips with what the outsourcing of manufacturing and the hollowing out of our manufacturing sector, which had been going on, you know, deindustrialization, you know, D Detroit had already collapsed. And we had been studying the loss of jobs and the whole rise of the outsourcing production model, which I'd been working in as an outsourcing agent for 15 years prior to that. So I understood that world very well. And it just fascinated me that these kids were so desperate for jobs with American corporations. They wanted to go and work at Nike. They didn't want to hear that these companies were doing anything wrong. And so they just basically uh, took the position that didn't matter what the working conditions were because every country has to go through some sort of uh, difficult development process like the Industrial Revolution when children were working in the mills in the United States, that sort of thing. Uh, but they didn't get that these factories are breaking the laws today. I mean, back in you know the 1890s and the early 1900s in this country, the laws hadn't been created yet. And because of the rise of the workers' movement and the trade union movement here, those laws were created, and that's why workers are not working seven days a week the way they are in Asia today. And so they just had such a, uh, a limited understanding of the realities of the laws that are in place, the regulations, the fact that this is 100 years later, thinking that it's okay to have 100-year-old working conditions employing child labor working for some of the most profitable large U.S. corporations overseas. And those corporations have no responsibility at all for what's happening in their supply chain. So um, I was really kind of moved by that experience and decided I would start a nonprofit that would investigate the factories and report back to the brands what their risks were and whether they had child labor in their supplier networks or whether they were at factories that weren't paying workers on a regular basis. And, you know, because we were finding at Verite the early years, people were working 90-plus hours a week, and the management had no embarrassment about telling you that because they thought that that would be a selling point, that you would want to place your order in a factory where the workers are exhausting themselves <laughs> 90 hours a week. But all of that changed as a result of the anti-sweatshop movement that started at the time that I was creating Verite. So I had a chance to have an early look at the whole anti-sweatshop movement and participate in a lot of the initiatives that came about as a result of brands taking more responsibility and wanting to know what's happening in their suppliers. Because like I said before, they often didn't even know where the factories were. And so, you know, I definitely want to dive into how you initially made inroads. Just today, the thought that things are so much more transparent, even to get a glimpse into factories in China, it's not that easy to do today. Not only do you need partnerships on the ground, but you also need to know which channels to go through. But before that, can you tell listeners about the auditing landscape in China way back at 
the cusp of the anti-sweatshop movement. Because even when I think about auditing in China, there's so many multinational organizations and nonprofits that have developed networks, and they aren't perfect for sure, but they exist. And I'm assuming that it always wasn't like that either. It didn't exist at all until the campaigns against Nike and the Gap really got going and the journalists covered them in the New York Times and the Washington Post and really raised the awareness. And of course, the students got involved because they didn't want to be buying these products and feeling like they were exploited teenagers and workers and people even working underage in making them. So the students really played a pivotal role. But um, it was interesting. At the beginning, there was nothing. And then the companies said that they would do it themselves. We'll do our own investigations, audits, social audits, as they're called, of our suppliers. And the campaigns, grassroots campaigns, said, no, that's not good enough because you have no incentive to ensure that things improve or to report to anybody. So we need to have independent organizations. So the first thing that uh, the companies suggested was, why don't we get our accounting firms to do the audits for us? So there was a period of time where Pricewaterhouse, Ernst & Young, um, all of the big accounting firms started to do some audits. But those audit reports sometimes got discredited. And... NGOs, advocates working on the ground, trying to help workers would report the opposite and be able to prove that the glowing report that had been written about the factory by the accounting firm was in fact just a greenwash report. And so over time, like in my case, I decided Verite had to be a nonprofit when I created it in 1995 because I wanted to have credibility. And I'd been at MIT, so I knew that... um, The academic standards that are required uh, in reporting um, are quite credible. And so I said, okay, we're going to use academic standards for how we gather our information. We're going to be a nonprofit. We're going to link with advocacy groups and credible organizations on the ground to interview workers confidentially off-site and not in environments where they're going to feel intimidated by the managers, often Workers won't talk, really, about the actual situations. And why should they when they're in the workplace and maybe the HR manager is nearby and they don't want to risk their job? And in some cases, they might get threatened by the factory if it comes out that they've given information that could actually undermine the relationship with the buyers. I mean, this is very serious information that's being shared. But um, it's just amazing. We always found lots of workers who were willing to talk to us. We had... Um, People from the factory slipped notes under our doors in our hotel in the evenings, um, making sure that we got the real information, didn't want us to leave without ensuring that we had, you know, correct payroll stubs because there was this whole um, rise in the early 2000s of creating false payroll reports because everything's computerized and digitized now. So um, it really relies upon workers and local NGOs to present the counter information and the actual pay stubs, et cetera. Because when the auditors go to the factories, they just get handed a big report that's waiting for them in several cases that's been created by management. And, oh, okay, thank you very much. Okay, everything looks good. And then their job is done. It's a lot more work if you discover there are 
numerous violations in the factory and workers are being abused and exploited. What are you going to do about it now that you have a report? So there were um, very few companies that really wanted to go there. But, um, oh, and it took uh, a year and a half to get our first audit of a factory from the time I started Verite and was meeting with people from Disney and The Gap and all these you know, brands that had already been targeted for uh, sweatshop situations in their supply chain. But it took meeting um, the COO of Tommy Hilfiger at the time who said, okay, we're doing this. And he just got so motivated and sent us to countries all over the world. They were producing in about 30 countries at the time. And then Timberland heard about it and they said, oh, we want to do that too. So they sent us to all of their countries as well. And so then it really started. We worked very closely with New Balance for several years and um, required having a person in a leadership role who was really committed and really wanted the information and had a plan that they were going to do something about it. They didn't always know what that remediation was going to be, but they would ask us for recommendations and suggestions. And then we developed a training arm for Verite and... Uh, my close colleague who ran the China department at Verite, she's still running a training organization based in China. Really? It also seems like partnerships was incredibly important for the companies that you're working with. But it also seems like when you're first getting started, there's this level of fear, protection around the work these big companies were doing. Let us engage, let us audit because we don't want to be on the front page of the New York Times. Right. All it takes is one person in the sector, one company in the sector to be involved in an expose and everybody else who wasn't targeted in the news report takes, you know, steps to ensure that that's not going to happen to them. So it's uh, actually very effective to raise alarm bells in an industry, even just in singling out one company, one big one. Mm. What did you feel like completing your first audit after all those years? Yeah. <laughs> what, did, what did you feel like completing your first audit? What we found from our first audit was just so outrageous that it created work for us for like three or four years, literally, <laughs> because we were sent to Saipan, which was um, a site of a lot of production in the... the Saipan. Oh, Saipan is an island in the Pacific near the Philippines. Didn't even know that. It's U.S. territory. <laughs> and the U.S. government had created a program where they were inviting in foreign factories to set up on U.S. soil. And they could get a made in the USA label if uh, they placed orders. So there were 21 very large U.S. retailers that were producing in Saipan, and eventually they got named in the largest class action suit in U.S. history for a number of violations, but worker trafficking and uh, basically locking workers in the factory without giving them access to their IDs or their passports. They would only be allowed out to go shopping when the factory management would decide. They were putting in over 90 hours a week. Uh, the women were uh, going to the emergency room at the local clinic because they were suffering from exhaustion and dehydration. Uh, we found just so many violations that uh, 
we became part of a, a movement to basically get Saipan shut down as a production area for the U.S. because they weren't required to abide by the Fair Labor Standards Act and the minimum wage laws in the U.S. So it was just a very, it was almost like a giveaway. You know, it's an island far away. Americans never heard of it. Uh, bring in the Chinese to set up factories. They found that several factories were invested in by the Chinese army. So that didn't look good either um, in terms of the the political fallout that was coming. Uh, some congressmen started doing fact-finding trips, and ultimately this huge class action suit was filed on behalf of something like uh, more than 8,000 workers. And eventually it got settled, but the sad part was that a lot of the workers had already left Saipan by that time, so they couldn't track them down to give them their money. Wow. $20 million settlement. Oh, and Verite was the independent monitor of the settlement, so we worked um, for a couple years more after that uh, on the settlement agreement, making sure everybody was paying in as they were supposed to and that uh, mm -hmm. they were following the, you know, the stipulations of the agreement. In your work, do you find that there are unique challenges that women workers face in factory environments? perhaps not only limited to Verite, but across your entire experience? Well, when I was running Verite, we were hearing a lot about um, sexual harassment. And in China, sometimes there were prostitution rings being run in the factories, uh, but not all the time. I wouldn't say that that was the norm, but we did come upon it periodically. Uh, but more recently, the stories of sexual harassment, I think, are being reported more widely. I... Uh, provided background and some quotes for an article in Mother Jones about um, what's called a Sumangali practice in India where, and also in Sri Lanka where young women are working in the factories but they're basically having to meet the expectations of factory managers and service them and provide sexual services or they may get fired. Um, and I think that perhaps... With the rise of so many factories, which has been relatively recent um, around the world with the outsourcing model just getting bigger and bigger all the time, that now there's more opportunities for women to speak out because there's the internet and there are advocates that are interviewing them and they can find their way sometimes to a labor office to report violations. I think we're hearing a lot more now and the whole thing about worker trafficking and sex trafficking leading to legislation that's actually been passed in California, the UK, the EU, and Australia um, called the you know, modern slavery legislation um, is really important because now every corporation that's doing business in any of those countries and in California has to provide documentation attesting that they've checked and they um, did not find any evidence of... Uh, human trafficking or worker trafficking in their supplier networks. And what prompted you to decide to pass on Verite and move into your work at New Standards? What prompted you to take that next step? Verite got pretty big. There were more than 30 employees in the office. And then we had about 60 consultants at all times who were working in the field every month. And so as the leader of the organization, my role became more and more administrative, 
running the office, dealing with the board of directors, the budget, uh, raising the money uh, for the budget. And after 10 years, I decided that I wanted to go more grassroots and work in the field again. And uh, my colleagues from the China Division decided they wanted to create an organization that's actually based on the ground in China. And so um, they decided they would set up in China, and I decided that I would work freelance. And I started working more with uh, campaigns in Europe who were looking very specifically at violations that they knew about that they wanted to create an activist campaign around um, in their regions. And that was of more interest to me because I had gotten so far away. I didn't even know what the audit report said anymore unless there was a problem with the report. Um, so for me, I just really wanted to get back to my earlier work and the vision that I had and the connections with the colleagues in the field. Mm -hmm. And um, also figuring out ways to try to uh, continue to make change. Yeah, it seems like a lot of your passion lies in putting boots on the ground and working more closely um, with the issues themselves rather than in a management role. Is that correct? Yeah, well, we'd gotten very good at revealing violations and problems and finding out things that other people never found. You know, there'd be a greenwash report about a factory, and then we'd go in and do the investigation, and the report would come back really bad, you know, with some very serious violations. And for me, being able to um, really dig in and connect with workers and find out uh, what they were experiencing and then give them hope that maybe there is a chance that things might get better as a result of their taking the risk. I really liked working with people who I thought were heroes on the ground because they were very inspiring to me. And that's also what happened in my working on Complicit, which is, again, like connected with all these people who were working at uh, you know the very lowest levels in factories who when they got sick, decided they wanted to fight back or they wanted to start working for local community organizations to help other workers. Um, they'd been, you know, really in a low place when they, like, lost a hand in the factory or got a leukemia diagnosis, but a lot of them really pulled themselves together in very heroic ways to want to help others and um, make the situation better. So for me, that's really inspiring. Yeah, I understand that you like investigative work, but you were never a documentary filmmaker. So was there ever any doubt about jumping into a new format, about tapping such a big question, big problem in a difficult format? I mean, it's not podcasting. <laughs> I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. I had just gone to China to start researching a book, and the first chapter was going to be following up on some occupational illness clinics that I'd heard about uh, being established in the Shenzhen and Guangzhou area, and I knew the workers from the apple factories that had been poisoned by N-hexane were probably still in the hospital, and I might have a chance to meet them. And I got a grant from an organization in New York that said, well, we're going to assign a videographer and pay for her to travel with you for a couple of weeks. And whatever you're working on, whatever you're investigating, she'll film, film it, and then we'll have something that we can put up on our website that'll be like a five- or seven-minute little film about what you were doing there. So five to seven minutes basically turns into an hour and a half. <laughs> yes. At the end of the two weeks, we just looked at each other because we'd found so many stories and so many scandals and so much corruption and just mind-blowing 
information about what's going on in Apple's supply chain. Um, there's hidden subcontractor networks, et cetera, and the disease that was you know, being developed as a result to exposure of these toxic chemicals that we said, we have to keep going. We've got to make a film about it. She was a videographer, so she knew something about editing footage, and I knew something about raising money. So I came back to the U.S. when we had 10 minutes of really good footage and showed it at a conference and raised $50,000 that night. And then we kind of had our start. Then we made this really great nine-minute trailer that got 1.2 million views on YouTube and 400 news articles were written about it. And then it made it possible to keep raising money to finish the film. But most of the funding came from outside the U.S. I couldn't get much support from U.S. funders. Even people who'd given me large grants before didn't want to get behind a project that criticized U.S. technology companies. Interesting. There are a lot of things I want to dive more deeply into. Let's actually start with the last thing you mentioned, fundraising. I think you were quoted in another interview saying fundraising was the most challenging part of making a documentary. Do you think that you underestimated the challenge of fundraising? Because it seems like you have a lot of experience and a lot of success with it in the past. Oh, yeah. I used to raise 2 or $3 million a year for Verite, but raising 300000 plus for a documentary was so much harder. It was absolutely excruciating to write so many grant proposals and get them turned down. Because as a first-time filmmaker with no track record... Why would they think that we would even finish the film if they gave us the money? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was able to get um, support from funders who knew about my work in uh, Europe. Like I said, I'd been working in Europe a bit uh, with new standards. And um, so I maybe was better known there at that moment in time as someone that they trusted would actually be able to get the film done. And they really liked the trailer because the trailer was great. We spent all of the 50000 on the trailer, which was probably not a good thing to have done. But, you know, it did go viral and it did get over 400 news articles written about it. So that was um, definitely a win. And Apple agreed to ban benzene and N-hexane as a result of the campaigns that were created that put pressure on uh, when our trailer was uploaded to YouTube. So we've uh, made a lot of progress just with our trailer. One of our funders said, why don't you just stop? Why finish the film? That's a lot of extra work. You have to raise a lot more money. Why don't you just end now? And I could have done that, but I felt a sense of obligation to all of these great people that we'd spent time filming, and they had shared so much of their experiences with us, and I felt like I would have let them down if I didn't get to tell their stories. And throughout this whole process, how important was it having a partner in making the documentary? Someone who understood the video side, maybe the language side. What was that work partnership like? Oh, it was so great. She took care of everything that she knew how to do, and I took care of everything that I knew how to do. And I had to learn some new things, of course, as the producer, because in addition to the fundraising, you have to learn how the film is being made and like what the next steps are and raise the money for that. And then you have to hire the people to do that. Um, so for me, it was a great learning process and a nice intellectual challenge yeah. to learn how to make a film and uh, hire a great team and Uh, worked so closely together for several years. It was really a great process. 
Now, were there any particular threads in the story that over the seven years evolved in a way that you weren't expecting? Well, we were filming from the beginning of 2013 and basically went into post-production near the end of 2015. So that was when the bulk of the footage was shot. And uh, my colleague, Lin Zhang, made a couple of more trips. We'd ran out of money, but she was able to get some side gigs that would take her to China. And then she could finish up with the last couple of scenes that we realized that we needed um, in order to finish the film, because we were just filming. We had no idea what the storyline was going to be or what the narrative thread or the arc was. We had no, no knowledge of those things. And when people started saying, this has to be dramatic like a narrative film. It needs to have a, a villain and a climax and excitement and suspense. And I said, what? No, we've already done this expose. We did the investigation. Why do we now have to make a story about it? It was so frustrating to realize we had that much more work to do. But we worked with a great screenwriter, and um, he helped us decide who should be the main character and to connect all the people in the film through relationships with him. And I think he made all the great choices. And he'd won an Academy Award um, for his work on other films, so he really knew what he was doing. And I made the decision early on, I'm just a movie watcher. I'm not really a filmmaker, so if I hire somebody who's giving me advice, I'm just going to take that advice because I'm not going to override an expert with 10 or 15 or more years in the field. I think that when we talk about narrative, one thing that really stood out to me was the guy that I thought was the protagonist, Ye Ting, he and his son had this very unique relationship that keeps up popping up over the course of the arc, for lack of a better word, during the story. There's a lot of hope, um, despite the hardship and complicit. Was that intentional? Absolutely. We didn't want to make a depressing film because then people would stumble out of there and tell their friends not to see it. <laughs> so we were very careful to inject as much as we could with the relationships and um, the Chinese culture so people could see the gatherings and the, how the families interacted with each other and how close they were. And we wanted ultimately for people to be inspired to do something. If, you're, if you feel like something is hopeless or a situation is, is never going to change, uh, maybe you're not going to pick up the phone and, and call your cell phone um, manufacturer and say, hey, are you using toxic chemicals? I saw a film. I don't want to be exposed to them myself. And the, uh, if there's any residues that are coming through on the devices or have concerns about the working conditions. People were jamming the phones at Apple, we were told, um, after our trailer went online. I called the 1-800 number, just talked to random operators a couple of times to see if they were hearing from their customers, and they said, yes, this is the subject that's most on people's minds right now. They're calling us every day, and for every person that calls in, we assume there's 100 people behind them that didn't call but feel the same way. So that was really encouraging, and I was so thrilled when they decided that they were going to start investigating their supply chain, at least at the first-tier supply level, mm -hmm. and uh, ban those chemicals. Talk a little bit about that. I think that this is still a very hidden issue, given the way that manufacturing works in China. 
Um, can you explain to the listeners a little bit more about the subcontracting system and how Western companies can almost be absolved, not in a good way, from their connection to the supply chain? Can you explain how subcontracting works, why manufacturers are subcontracted, and how does this chain link almost get broken in the system? I guess I can give an example yeah. from early on in my career when uh, there was a early expose uh, that involved Kathy Lee Gifford, and she had a line of clothing that was being produced for Walmart. Mm-hmm. And it was generating about $300 million a year in revenues. And when there was a group called the National Labor Committee that went public with a press release saying that in Honduras and some other Central American countries where that line was being produced, that there was all this underage labor and sweatshop violations. Um, She called me in with her team and said, can you help us figure out what's going on here? I had no idea. And uh, here's the list of the 24 factories that are making this $300 million line of clothing um, annually. And I said... There's no way you've got 24 factories involved to produce this much in revenue. Um, I'm guessing you've got at least 600 factories that are involved who are all subcontracting to these 24. So the 24 factories are getting the big orders. They're not saying, oh, no, we only have the ability to produce 10,000 dozen a week. They're just going to take the order, and they know that they have relationships with lots of factories that are nearby, and maybe those factories don't have people who speak English, maybe those factories don't have nice-looking facilities, so they know that they can't get a direct order from a Walmart or a big U.S. retailer that comes down there to place orders, but they know that they can provide the goods. And so um, when I said that they had probably 600 producers in their subcontracting networks, that was overwhelming for them. And so I I was fired immediately because they didn't want to go that deep. So that was the end of that relationship. And that's okay. And then I found out later from people who ended up doing work on the Kathy Lee project that in fact, they identified over 800 factories. So you were only 200 off. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was 200 off, but that was enough to, (laughs) to scare them into realizing that they had a much bigger network of hidden production workers who were being subjected to who knows what kinds of working conditions. Yeah, that was pretty overwhelming. Besides learning that you are not a filmmaker, I mean, to take the words out of your mouth, is there um, anything else that you learned in the making of Complicit? I think I learned that for me in my work... The relationships with people and the ability to connect around issues that I feel are important. Like for me, the whole motivation for making Complicit was to get a campaign started against the electronics industry so that they would have to address the fact that thousands of people are getting poisoned in their factories and they have to do something about it. Um, Apple's not the only one. They're the only U.S. company who had moved 100% of their production to China in 2007 for the launch of the iPad and the iPhone. Um, So they're a bigger target for campaigning and uh, requests for improvement in the industry. A lot of the other brands, of course, we came upon 
factories and workers who were producing for Dell and HP and other U.S. brands. But those companies are more spread across Asia. They're not only, you know, Apple's 100% in China, totalitarian dictatorship. Workers have no voice. When they try to advocate for themselves, they get harassed by the police, um, the factories are working in tandem with the police. They actually have police stations on the periphery of a lot of the bigger factories. These factories are employing 200,000 to 300,000 workers. Um, so for me, finding a problem like this was really about um, sharing it with the world and getting the story out there, but also connecting really closely with the families and they were so welcoming of us and so appreciative because they couldn't believe that Americans would come all the way over to China and find them in their neighborhoods around the hospitals. A couple of the families actually were living on the hospital premises because they were spending so much time there. And uh, just to be able to develop that connection at the same time as working on a, a globally relevant issue and trying to advocate for change... I love that. Mm. that. That just pulled it all together. Has advocacy translated into action in the way you hoped it would? What else do you think still needs to be done? Oh, well, we can see with the Samsung campaign in South Korea that um, it can transform into advocacy very successfully if you're operating in an environment with a free press where NGOs are allowed to um, operate openly and connect with workers and families who have real grievances, where there are uh, public sector agencies that are not corrupt, but are actually um, going to support the efforts of workers to get compensation and occupational protection. I mean, while we were working on the film in uh, 2015, Samson announced an $80 million compensation fund for the uh, over 250 workers that they admi admitted had uh, occupational leukemia, and they publicly apologized and said they were going to do better. And that doesn't necessarily mean everybody's getting all the money that they ask for for their compensation, but it at least creates mechanisms within the company now to address the issue of occupational disease, and they're definitely working on making sure it doesn't continue. In China, the exact opposite is the case. You know, the government just tries to cover it up. Foxconn's the largest private employer in the country. So they're getting a lot of support from the government for their working conditions to the point where they had a program where 300,000 students were pulled out of school and forced to work at the Foxconn factory because Foxconn decided that labor had gotten too expensive in the Pearl River Delta and they didn't want to pay. What year was that? Uh... 2013, 14, yeah, it's been going on for a while. Apple created a policy saying they weren't going to uh, support that strategy any longer. Wow. Yeah, because the kids were saying they were told they wouldn't graduate unless they worked full-time at Foxconn, violating all sorts of rules that are on the books in China about young workers. If workers between the ages of 16 and 19 have all these protections, they're not supposed to work at night, they're not supposed to work overtime, they're not supposed to be exposed to any hazardous chemicals, all of those were ignored um, in bringing in these student interns. I didn't think I was going to ask for a call to action, but for a listener that's surprised 
or interested or maybe didn't even realize some of these things were going on. Besides, of course, watching your film, what else do you say to people when they ask, what can I do about it? I think the best thing they can do is call the companies or write emails to the companies because they do pay attention to those letters that come in. They don't have to be hard copies. They can just be an email, but they actually get transferred to the social compliance or the uh, social responsibility department and they pay attention to those letters. So it, it really does make a difference if you pick up the phone and call and if you um, let people know at the companies that this is an issue that matters to you and you know about it and you want them to be more transparent about everything that's going on in their supply chain and that they should extend bans on hazardous, life-threatening chemicals throughout their supplier networks, not just to their first-tier suppliers. Like in Apple's case, first-tier suppliers are only a third of the uh, factories in China. So two-thirds of the workforce aren't actually being protected by the ban. Hmm. Have you ever felt like you've fallen short or haven't done enough? I think I do. I think a lot of people probably feel that way in terms of uh, what they think they could achieve if they worked harder, you know, if they'd been um, willing to put even more effort into um, their work or their project or their career. I feel very good about Complicit, though. That's a, a group effort. It's not my product, you know. It's a film that, as you see in the credits of every film, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people involved, and every one of them was doing something really important. So uh, for me, yeah, sometimes I feel a little regret because I could have gone a different way with my Chinese and my, my career. But uh, the most extreme time I felt that was with a classmate of mine from uh, Phillips Andover, where I went to high school, who never sp spent a day learning Chinese, knew no Chinese whatsoever. But he's a big investment banker, uh, in, you know, venture capital uh, investor who's been very successful. He flew over to China on one business trip and made $100 million. And when he came back and I heard, you know, or read what this, you know, uh, successful project had yielded, I was just feeling like, oh, man, oh, man, man. yeah, I have, I have not succeeded. And you beat me to the punch because I was going to ask you what you've been most proud of. And it's great to hear that Complicit has been something that you feel is successful because it's undeniable by the numbers. And that's impressive. That's really impressive. I'm satisfied. And I'm, I'm happy that I've done the work that I've done with Verite and also because um, so I had a fellowship at Harvard Safra Center for Ethics for a couple of years before Complicit got started um, where I was able to do research on why is, are there so many greenwashing reports about factories compliance and there'd been the Rana Plaza factory collapse and there'd been a couple of big factory fires in Bangladesh and India um, and I really wanted to explore after 20 years of companies saying they were monitoring their supply chains we were seeing you know more loss of life than ever um, so to be able to work on that issue and to uh, have an influence on it feels good and I want to ask you what I ask most guests to really round things out. And 
what is one piece of advice that someone has given you in the past that you've found yourself giving others recently? Well, one piece of advice, which was kind of a joke, that um, one of my neighbors said to me once when we were talking about being a perfectionist in our work and always wanting everything to be just right. And sometimes that drives people crazy that you're working with because you're not willing to give up the project when it's at 80% and and it's good enough. He said that his motto was, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. And I laughed and uh, thought about that. And I realized that a lot of times that last 20% that you're so obsessed with in finishing something uh, takes up a lot of time. And in fact, if you can give up that, that last percentage of just your own perfectionism, if you, if you think you need to, um, not saying not to do excellent work, but if, if there's an opportunity to say, okay, good enough, it can go out the door, and then I can get, get in, you know, started and finish something else, that you actually have the ability to get more done. And as a mother of three and running an international organization with 30 employees and um, still always wanting to have intellectually challenging work and projects, that helped me a lot because it made me realize I could delegate more. I could uh, not be such a uh, perfectionist about every single thing, let it go, get more done, and also feel like I was meeting my responsibilities without feeling guilty uh, at home with my kids. I think that's a really good piece of advice to end on. I don't think I've been in an interview, quite honestly, where I've just said, wow, <laughs> so many times. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and chatting with me and all of the listeners on the line. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Again, many thanks to Kaiser Quo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I always do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings can be sent to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. And a huge shout out to listeners across the world. We're really excited to announce that we have listeners in every single continent but Antarctica. So keep listening, keep engaging with the show. You really make us work. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.